All right, join me in a word of prayer. Will you just bow our heads? Lord, as we move from the last series into this series, our focus is on how to live with courage and conviction in the midst of a culture that is growing increasingly hostile to you, hostile toward biblical values, hostile toward the public expression of our Christian faith. And Lord, we're just asking you that this would be not just an informational series, but Lord, it would be transformational, that you would download into us uh, courage and vision and commitment and passion for you uh, so that we could be part of the solution and not part of the problem in our culture today. So Holy Spirit, we invite you to come. We invite you to minister to us now in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen, amen. I shared, you know, in the last series that we talked on, I, I, I hope I made a good case for the fact that America is ripe for the judgment of God. Uh, for many, many years now, we've been living in, in unprecedented prosperity as a nation. That's why, by the way, we encourage you to leave America. Everybody get a passport and leave this country because you never know how good we have it until you leave. Uh, until you look at the way the rest of the world operates. Even now, we're still living in unprecedented prosperity. Your personal life might not seem like you have unprecedented prosperity, but that's why it's important to leave and go see the way the rest of the world lives, and you'll realize that Americans' lowest standard of living is higher than most of the world's highest standard of living, uh, and we are a blessed people. Now, I tried to also connect the dots to say that there's a reason why we're a blessed people. We're a blessed people because we honor God and because we've applied his principles uh, in our lives. And Lynn, before I get too far, I'm looking at this wonderful smiling man of God's face out there, Lynn Reynolds. We have a great pro-life movie coming out. It's at the theaters this week. Next week. October 7th. It's called Voices. I mean, you know, we're starting to see a lot more Christian movies making the mainstream and this is an incredible movie promoting life, and I want to make sure that we get tickets and get as many people out there as we can. So you have tickets. People can see you. All right. I, I, I didn't want that to slip. I just saw you, and I needed to go straight there. All right. Um, so bottom line is we've been ripe for the judgment of God. Um, how many of you know, even just this last week, two, two different folks just opened up on people shooting random people in shopping malls? I mean, you know, that's as demonic as it can be, and it's a sign that things are spinning out of control. Look what's happening uh, with our uh, race relations in America. we got all kinds of chaos on our hands. I, I mean, to say this, there's, if you look ben- beneath what the talking heads are saying on, on uh, the news, you realize, here's my point, this is a sign of the judgment of God on our nation. When you live in peace and unity and blessing and honor God, guess what happens? There's like a covering over your nation of blessing. When you reject God, when you say, basically, you thumb your nose at God's laws and you publicly begin to pass laws and you publicly begin to rule like the Supreme Court, you rule and you promote what is wicked and what God hates, God doesn't sit back and go, oh, well, you know, it it stinks to be me. No, he doesn't say that. God begins to judge nations that act that way. And he is no respecter of people and he is no respecter of nations Nations throughout history that have done that end up on the dust bin of human history. And God forbid that we end up on the dust bin of human history. That's not my message. I believe God has better for us. Amen? And I believe this is the time when the church shines the brightest. In fact, let me just tell you this. The church does the best not when we're most blessed. The church historically always does the best when we're on the fringes of society and when we're countercultural. Because you know what? It's easy for everybody to join the club when you're cool and when you're in. 
and when your message is being well received. But guess what? You get a lot of phoniness and you get a lot of fakes and you get a lot of people that are just pretending. I heard a story one time, and I, I think it's a true story, but it becomes almost like Christian folklore, where all of a sudden people were meeting in church Sunday morning, the door swung open, a bunch of guys came in with masks on and machine guns. They said, every Christian in this place, line up against the wall. What would you, what would you do if that happened? Somebody bur- burst through the doors this morning and says, all right, all the Christians, line up on that wall. All the rest of you, get out of here. Well, what happened was some people got up and made their way to stand up to the wall, the Christians, and all the rest of the people ran out the doors. The guys took off their masks, and they said, all right, we can have church now because the only ones left here are the believers. I mean, you know, it's easy to love Jesus when all you're hearing is, isn't Jesus great, and the culture's embracing you, and, and you know, you're on the, on the Time magazine and Christians and praise the Lord and everything. Now, that's when everybody gets mixed up, but you know what? When the heat gets turned up, that's when what, what, the only people showing up are people with conviction and passion, people who have really had a relationship with Christ, people who really know God. And let me just say this. The reason the gospel is spreading like wildfire around the nations of the world is not because everything's smooth and comfortable, but just to the contrary. It's because there's great persecution and great affliction around the nations of the world. And that's why you really begin to see who's really loving Jesus, who really knows God, and who's just a pretender. I mean, you know, we don't want to be a pretender, amen? Am I speaking to the right crowd? Um, We're not experiencing persecution in America. We're experiencing pressure. There's an increasing pressure. I was talking to a brother in the Lord just a couple days ago, and he said, you know what? If I really was outspoken about my Christian beliefs in my workplace, I would be fired. I know it because um, our company is one of those progressive uh intolerantly intolerant companies, if you know what I mean, Uh, where if you speak anything that goes against political correctness, you get a pink slip. This is what I'm talking about. This is real life. So many of us are finding these kinds of decisions where we're confronted with out there in the marketplace. By the way, we told you this was all going to happen. We told you that ideas have consequences. We told you that people that won't protect life and marriage and, and religious liberty, that these would be things that we're going to be increasingly facing. And guess what? It's happening every single day in America. And it's escalating. So I want us to be ready. As a pastor, I want you to be ready. Most of us feel like we ask ourselves this question, what in the world happened to America? Have any of you even said that within the last year? I know I have. What has happened to the country in which I was raised? Eric Metaxas, who's a Christian author, captures what I believe many of us feel. He says this. He says, does it kind of feel like folks have lost their minds? That we've taken a collective walk through the looking glass and nothing is logical and nothing really makes sense. And here's the example he gives. He goes, you can look people square in the eye and assert a scientific biological fact, such as if you have an X and a Y chromosome and you have male sexual organs, then you're not a woman. Only to have them accuse you of being a hater and being on the wrong side of history. How many of you know we've lost our minds? And I just want to tell you, welcome to Babylon. Uh, we are living in what is becoming increasingly a pagan culture where people have lost their minds. At least when we say they lost their minds, it's because we're not thinking according to a biblical worldview. Which, by the way, I'm going to give a quick plug. Next month, on Wednesday nights, the month of October, I'll be teaching biblical worldview. If you haven't taken that class, come out and join us. I've completely reformatted it so we can go a little bit deeper, not as wide, but deeper. So I encourage you to come out because it's critical... If you want to stand with conviction, you need to know what you believe, and you can't know what you believe unless you're grounded in the truth of God's Word. 
So let me introduce you to Daniel because we're going to be spending the next uh, four or five weeks in this wonderful book of Daniel, and we're going to look at the character of Daniel. And as you know, I think it's a perfect follow-up to where we've been because the book of Daniel opens with an account of being taken off as slaves into Babylon, as exiles. And I just want to remind you that Daniel, even though at the time he was a very young man, was reaping the sins of the generation before him. Uh, he was he was reaping his forefathers' negligence and idolatry, and they're turning their back on God. And because God's people had abandoned him, now the fulfillment of the prophecies, he had warned them over and over again through the prophets. He said, if you continue to walk this way, this is what's going to happen. How many of you know God is true, and God is not a liar, and what God says, he does. And I just want to tell you again, we have had an abundant supply of warnings in this nation about the direction that we're headed. And as sure as God judged Israel, I promise you that God will be judging our own nation if there's not a a huge awakening that happens. So Daniel opens up with the southern kingdom of Judah being taken captivity into Babylon. And I want you to see this. God uses wicked people as his servants. And in this situation, he used a very wicked, evil king, Nebuchadnezzar, as his personal servant. I mean, you know, God can use evil to accomplish his good purposes, and he does it all the time. So open up your Bibles with me. Get your fingers at work here. Open up to Daniel, Daniel chapter 1, and we're going to read the first five verses together. Daniel, Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. It says, During the year of King Jehoiakim's reign in Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem, and he besieged it. And I want you to look at what it says next. Who gave him the victory? Verse 2. The Lord gave him the victory. This is the Lord granting an an evil, ungodly king victory over his own people. I mean, you know, that's called a, a paddle. God is using a wicked king to deal with his people. The Lord gave him victory over King Jehoiakim of Judah, and it permitted him to take some of the sacred objects from the temple of God. So Nebuchadnezzar took them back to the land of Babylonia and placed them in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of staff, to bring to the palace some of the young men of Judah's royal family and other noble families who had been brought to Babylon as captives. This is what the king's command was in verse 4. He said, select only strong, healthy, good-looking young men and make sure they're well-versed in every branch of learning. They're gifted with knowledge and good judgment and they're suited to serve in the royal palace. Train these young men in the language of the literature of Babylon. And then the king assigned them a daily ration of food and wine from his own kitchens. And they were to be trained for three years. And then they would enter royal service. I want you to notice something here. First of all, Israel for years had been bringing false gods into their temple, the temple of the one true God. And now isn't it interesting that the very first place the judgment of God occurs is on his house. And he goes in and said, Nebuchadnezzar says, I'm stealing all of your precious things and I'm taking them back to my temple. This is an amazing principle we've got to get, that if we don't get our act together and we allow the world to come into here, eventually the world's going to come in and plunder. Instead of them coming for the good news of the gospel, they're going to plunder. And in this situation, what was the plunder? I want you to see this. Nebuchadnezzar went in and took the finest of the next generation of young people. Now let this sink in. If we, as godly parents, are not serious about our faith, if we as godly parents are not serious about what Andrew talked about, living with passion for Jesus, how many of you know it's not our faith that gets plundered, it's our children that are the ones that are the plunder. 
And some of you in this room can relate to exactly what I'm talking about. Because, and I don't want this to be a, a, a sign of condemnation. But how many of you know, your children sev- seldom rise above the water level of your walk with God. And let me just say this, men, men, listen to me. Your sons will seldom ever attain to anything greater than the ceiling that you have laid for them by your own consecration and love for Jesus Christ. Isn't it amazing when fathers give up, when fathers stop worshiping, when fathers stop leading the way? It's their sons that are the first ones who say, this is all a bunch of hogwash. Why am I going to bother going to church? Why do I bother spending time with God? Why do I bother following the Lord? Because my own father in his own life and lifestyle told me this really isn't that important. I mean, you know, we don't want to see the next generation plundered. But this is exactly what's happening here. The iniquity of the fathers is being played out in the lives of their children. And so the king of Babylon handpicks the best and the brightest. And notice, these are his trophies. And they're also his hostages to remind all the parents back back home, don't mess with my rule because I have your sons and your daughters under my care. And this was a wicked, ungodly king, and, uh, and it was almost in the sense of being a hostage situation, reminding them. Now, I want to remind you something else. These boys that were taken into captivity were teenagers at the time. It was not primarily because of their sin. It was because of the sins of the generation before them. And this is important to understand. I shared with this before. Sometimes in times of judgment, don't think we're going to be exempt from suffering with our culture in the midst of judgment, because it happens. These guys are, these parents are watching their offspring, their kids being forcefully removed from their families and taken into captivity and having to watch the whole thing happen. They're going to be involved in an elite three-year training program, and here's the design of this program. They want to totally immerse and indoctrinate these young men in the culture and the worldview of Egypt. Their goal is to strip them of their God and to strip them of their culture. The uh, Bible theologians tell us that Daniel was maybe 15 years old. Imagine, young people, if you're 15 and you're taken away from your home, you're walking uh, out, you're looking behind, there's your hometown, there's your family, there's everything that's familiar, there's all the cultural symbols that make you feel at home, and you're gone, and you find yourself in an absolutely strange place with demonic gods. In fact, when you look at the testimony of Babylon, Babylon was, is used over 300 times in the Bible as a symbol for ungodliness, sexual promiscuity, and adultery. This is a stronghold of demonic perversion. And what I want you to see, and this is what I love talking about Daniel, Daniel is not a priest, Daniel is not a pastor. Daniel is a public servant. Daniel is somebody that is like you if you're not, you know, doing what I'm doing on Sunday morning. He's a marketplace guy. So how many of you know sometimes you come to church and you think, well, that's nice, pastor, but you're a pastor and that's for pastors and the Bible's for pastors and super spiritual people, that's the pastor. But I'm just a normal guy. I just go to work. No, 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 no. Daniel blows that whole thing up. Daniel was just a normal guy. Who goes to work? Daniel is a public servant brought into the king to be trained for public service. He's not a pre- preacher guy. All right? And even though God used him to prophesy, he's not a prophet in the truest sense. He's a politician. How do you know signs and wonders? God can use politicians. God can raise up godly men and women to serve public life. Here's what he's doing with Daniel. So Daniel is stuck right in the center of the most powerful empire of the world. It's the cultural center for art and industry. And it was creating incredible wealth and luxury for its citizens. It was a nation of great material prosperity and also great moral perversion. Does it sound like any place you know today? And this is what's amazing about the Bible. Daniel was moved from the lowly status of an exiled slave 
to become one of the most powerful men in the entire world. Isn't that awesome? Here's the message for us this morning. In times of judgment and in times of God's dealing with the nation, there are men and women that God will put in positions that start from nowhere, and God will exalt you to a place of great, great, great influence if you'll allow him to. But here's the question I want to focus on this morning. How did Daniel live in a culture or live with a heart of faithfulness in the midst of a wicked and hostile culture? What And what can we learn from him to help us in the times in which we live here today? I want to talk for a moment about conviction so we understand what conviction is because Daniel certainly had conviction. I like this. Convictions are not merely beliefs that we hold, but they are beliefs that hold us. Isn't that good? A conviction is not something, well, I just believe this strongly. No, a conviction is something you believe so strongly that it literally holds you. It grips you. It, it, it grabs your heart. It is something that grips you and cannot let go of you no matter what's going on in the circumstances around you. Convictions are non-negotiables in your life. And I want to ask you this morning, if you had to sit down right before the Lord, you sit in his presence, you say, all right, Lord, I'm going to write out a list of things that are non-negotiable. How I many you know that would be time well spent? What are the things in your life that are simply beyond negotiation? What are the things in your life where you just say, you know what, this is what I believe, and this, and this, this belief has literally gripped me. In fact, another way to ask the question is this. What are the truths that you are willing to die for? What are the truths that you're willing to die for? See, everything else would just be a mental belief or something that you kind of hold on to. But the things that you're willing to die for represent convictions in your life. You know, we've all watched with terror as we've seen ISIS do their thing across the Middle East. And Tony Perkins was telling us of a firsthand account that he was aware of where parents or parents were forced to watch their children one by one be slaughtered in front of their eyes. And all they had to do was say that they were converting to Islam and that they were denying Jesus Christ. But how many of you know these kids, one after one, as their parents encouraged them, one after one stood up and said, no, I am a Christian. I am a follower of Jesus Christ. And then those kids were, were brutally murdered in front of their, their parents' eyes. Um, I mean, you know, that's a conviction. That's something that's non-negotiable. And it's, how about this? The Bible says your steadfast love, David said this, your steadfast love is better than life itself. Convictions are those things that are more valuable than life itself. Do you have conviction? Do you have conviction? I can think back through my life at various times when I was confronted with a sense. Let me just tell you, convictions, when they're pressed against, create a sense of holy anger on the inside of your spirit. Have you ever been angry for righteousness sake? Not for carnal reasons, but for righteousness sake. I remember sitting down at the state house and listening to people completely twist and pervert the gospel in the name of Jesus, completely pervert the clear teaching of scripture. And inside of me, I just sat there in the, in the, you know, in the peanut gallery going, Lord, oh, I can't take this. God, who's going to stand up for righteousness? Who's going to stand up and speak the truth? Who's going to stand up for your word? Who's going to declare your message in our generation? I remember it was burning within me. And let me just tell you this, the things that burn within you many times are a, a prophetic pretaste of what God is going to do in your life. Because if you don't care in the first place, why would God ever give you an opportunity to speak? 
Well, you know, it wasn't but a few years later, I found myself standing on those same, uh, in the chambers of, a, of the state house and declaring boldly the truth, God's word, his holiness, his righteousness, his standard in the midst of a very, very hostile culture, in the midst of a whole room of people that absolutely hated uh, that message and hated that truth. But see, these are things that it doesn't matter at that point because you'd be willing to die for whatever that was. You'd be willing, rather than have God's name trampled in the ground, you would be willing to do something about it. That's a conviction. When everybody else is going this way and you know it's the wrong way, people with conviction stand in the face and they walk the opposite direction. Daniel had convictions. The question is, how did he get these? Where'd they come from? I want to give you two key things this morning, very quickly, to lay a foundation for building a, a heart full of godly conviction. And the first, first principle is this. You have to know God. Principle number one, knowing God. To live courageously on the basis of one's convictions, we must first know the courageous one, Jesus Christ. How many of you know you cannot roar like a lion unless the lion lives in you? It's hard to stand and be courageous in our culture today if you don't know the one who is the courageous one. Now, I know that the movie The Passion of the Christ is a Hollywood movie, but there's a scene in that movie that gets me so fired up. We like to show it at our men's encounter. It's when Jesus is chained there to that whipping post, and he's been pummeled by, uh, by the Roman uh, guard. They're mocking him, and they show these terrible weapons of torture that they're using to, to rip him apart. And Jesus collapses to the ground. He's laying there in his own, his own blood and, uh, and, and totally weak and under the power of the, being beaten to, literally to death. And, uh, and Jesus stands right back up on his feet and, and begins taking it again. And um, when I see that, I see courage. When I see him carrying the cross... Up to, to Calvary. I don't see a man of weakness. I see a man of incredible strength. When I see him beaten beyond recognition, covered in blood, and not even looking like a human being, releasing forgiveness and being a man of courage and standing between heaven and earth as my Savior and taking upon his body my sin and doing it with such courage and such strength. When I see that, something goes off inside of me. And I'm like, I want to live that way for you. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Now, here's the cool thing. When Jesus comes to live in a man or woman of God, that courage lives in me. The same spirit of Jesus lives in me. And you find yourself doing things and acting in ways that you thought, how am I getting, how do I get myself into this? And my goodness, how come I'm not afraid? Or maybe I am afraid, but I'm doing it anyway. Well, where'd that come from? It, it comes from the courageous one who lives inside of you. And it's hard to explain if you've never met him, if you've never encountered him, if you don't know him, you can't live this way. And you'll never have conviction and you'll never have the courage to stand. You'll never be able to go against the grain. You have to know Jesus. That's why this separates religious people, people that look like they got it all. But it's just religion from people who have had an encounter with him. I mean, you know, the encounter changes everything. When you really know him, it changes everything, not just about him. And we see how important Daniel, his conviction came from the outflow of his encounter with God, even as a young boy. And this is, I'm talking about a 15 year old kid here. Young people, you're, it's never too soon to pursue Jesus. It's never too soon to lay your life down for him. It's never too soon to be encountered by him. I remember when I was at Lake Central High School, Mr. Vassar, back in the day. 
Come on, Mr. Gandolfi, a good old LC back in the day. I was a nice little 15-year-old. I was a good little kid. But you know what? I was exposed at that time by the Holy Spirit showing me that even though I was trying to be the nice kid, get good grades, not get in trouble, I didn't have any conviction and courage to boldly live for God. Anybody, Anybody know the difference? I mean, I was just going with the flow as best as I could. And then came the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I mean, you know, when, when God baptizes you in his spirit, everything changes. And I remember I started saying, God, I don't, don't want to be a nice religious kid while everybody around me is going to hell. I want to be a kid that really loves you and stands up for you. And I want to be full of your spirit. And I want to have the boldness to live and speak and be your man in this school. The baptism of the Holy Spirit changed everything because God filled me with his presence. And I, I don't know how to explain it, but I was a different person. I knew God, but that brought his intimacy in a way that changed my life. As a, as a 16-year-old sophomore at Lake Central High School, everything began to change. See, my heart changes my lifestyle. My lifestyle changes my world. And that's the way God intends it to be. But it starts on the inside and it works its way out. Daniel had a relationship with God long before he was ever exiled to Babylon. And let me just say this. A crisis is not the best time to figure out that you need God. You know, you've heard in the landscaping business, you know, the best time to plant a tree was 10 years ago. But the second best time is now. Let me just say it works the same in your relationship with God. The best time to find God is not in the midst of a crisis that's threatening everything that you know around you. The best time to know God is right now because he will be with you in the crises that you have to walk through. And I'm looking out at some wonderful saints that I could go on a bunny trail right now, but you know who I'm talking about. That When crisis hits your life, thank God. You had a relationship with Christ that was bigger than the crises. And it acted as a guiding point, a sense of conviction that kept you moving in the right direction and doing the right things, even in the midst of a difficult time. And it literally carried you through the crisis. Daniel, thank God, knew the Lord as a young boy. And his intimacy with God is what carried him through the crisis. And there's an amazing verse in Daniel's book that highlights the relationship between intimacy with God and action for God. And I want us to look there this morning. This is Daniel 11, verse 32. Many of you know it. It's a great refrigerator verse, as I like to say. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Take a look. The people who know their God shall be strong and do great things. People that know God are strong people, and they're people that are fruitful people, who do great things with their life. This would be a verse I'd like you to meditate on this week, almost like a theme verse from here in week one. That word, know God, is the Hebrew word yada, which is the word used to describe the sexual intimacy between a husband and a wife. It's not a word that's talking about a sexual relationship, at least as it relates to God, but it's talking about the depth of intimacy that a man and his wife have together that is unparalleled. God is saying, people that know me in that level of intimacy, people who have a relationship with me, people who have encountered me in that way, are people that move with strength and they move with action. They're people who leave an impact. It was Daniel's intimate relationship with God that gave him the strength to live out his convictions with courage. Now think about this for a moment. 
If you genuinely know the Lord, when crises come, there's a strength that rises up inside of you that enables you to face those winds of adversity right in the face and to remain strong. I'm not talking about a carnal kind of strength, suck it up, I can get through this strength. I'm talking about an inward strength where you find God in the midst of the difficult times that you're going through. And there's a sense, even in the storm, where you have peace of mind and you have a sense of joy in your spirit and a sense of confidence that God is for you and not against you. Y'all know what I'm talking about. That comes out of a relationship with Jesus. Which is why spending time with God, having a daily time with God, getting in your word, spending time in prayer, and doing godly things and hanging with godly people is so important because it all helps us to know the Lord and to walk with God. And I love this. People that know God are action figures. People that know God are are people that have a vision that drives them. They They have a sense of purpose in their lives. They're not just hanging out. They're not just going through life like everybody else. People that know God do great exploits. And it's not always us individually. I mean, no, it's a corporate exploit. I, I'm getting really excited about that, that, that women's center down there that's getting rebuilt by our family, even as I speak. I get excited about that because you know what? Their celebration is our celebration. Uh, I get excited about that. But how about this? I'm excited about fresh exploits that God's going to do in our generation. God's not done with us. God's not worried. He's not sitting on his throne biting his nail. God's got incredible things down the road for his people. God's waiting to show off, waiting to do great exploits through his people. I want to be one of those people. How about you? Look what it says Daniel did in Daniel chapter 1, verse 8. Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. I want you to notice something. There came a point. When the king's basically saying, look, I'm going to take care of you all. I'm going to reprogram you. I'm going to feed you so well that here's the goal. I'm going to make it so good for you. You're going to forget where you came from and you're going to forget your God. So he's whining and dining the people. Anybody see that movie Unbroken? Um, when, uh, when the communists decided that the, the way they wanted to break him was that they were going to take him out. If they couldn't break him under the torture, they were going to break him by showing him what he could have if he just compromised. And they took him to that place where all of his peers who had compromised and who had turned their back on the United States and on, on, our, uh, on our nations, turned their back, and he brought them in. And there, here's this dining room full of sumptuous food. And he said, basically, you know what, if you'll work for us, can have all this. There were the there were the call girls, the ladies that were available at his disposal for to, to fulfill his sensual desires and pleasures while he's starving to death, living in literally a hellhole of a concentration camp where he's beaten, where he's being starved to death. And and basically the, there's the, the wicked ruler was saying, look at what could be yours if you just forget who you are and forget where you came from. You know what? I just thank God for people on this planet. They can't be sold for any price. I thank God that there are still people of principle. There's not a lot, but there are still people of principle who will not sell out for lesser things. Daniel said, I resolved in my heart, I'm not going to eat what the king is setting before me. Now, why was this such a big deal? In fact, some people say, you know what, God, here's what people say, God knows my heart. Or people say this, well, if God wouldn't have allowed me to be in this situation in the first place, uh, then I'd be serving him stronger. But since he's allowed this to happen, I'm just going to eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow I die. That's not what Daniel's position was. Daniel 
and notice this too. When Daniel says, no, 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 I don't think I'm going to eat the king's food. I mean, you know, he, he was living in full awareness that that could come with a consequence. In fact, let me tell you something about, about Nebuchadnezzar. This is, in, this is in Jeremiah 39. This king was so wicked, he made King Zedekiah watch as his children were slaughtered before his eyes. And the last thing Zedekiah saw with his own eyes before they were gouged out was his children being slaughtered by King Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, you know, this is not somebody you want to go against. But Daniel said, I have resolved in my heart that I'm not going to partake of the king's food. Why was this such a big deal? Because the king's food was attached to the king's agenda, the king's worldview. It was attached to idol worship. It was attached to eating food that they were forbidden to eat based upon the ceremonial law of God. Daniel's basically saying, hey, the reason we're in captivity is because we violated the law of God. Why would I keep violating the law of God even as I'm in captivity? It's the reason we're here in the first place. And Daniel said, I will not be defiled. That's called conviction. And we can get in, we don't have time this morning, to how he wisely appealed, how he shared his heart. God gave him amazing favor. God blessed him. But the point was this. It all started by somebody that had the guts to put the brakes on and say, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm drawing a line right here. I'm not going to cross that line. You know what happened next? They tried to change his name. It was a, a, a situation of identity theft, which leads me to the second point here. You not only have to know God, but you have to know yourself. We hear much today about the problem of identity theft, right? When a wrong person gets our access to our name, our account numbers, our passwords, tries to steal our identity, tries to steal everything that we own. And of course, Satan is the ultimate identity thief, amen? Satan is out to rob you of who you are. He's out to rob you of everything that you have. And uh, and so how do they do that? Well, next came, and we don't have time to get into the scripture and verse, but in that same chapter one, they started renaming all these guys. Now, I want you to know a name is an important thing. I know the Browns, you guys have been working really hard, praying, wrestling, because a name is an important thing. You want a name that signifies something good. That's why we don't have a lot of our people naming their kids, you know, Adolf after Adolf Hitler, or, um, or uh, how about uh, Jezebel? We don't have a lot of Christian babies named Jezebel. There's a reason, right? Because that signifies something that pops into our mind that's not good. Daniel's name meant God is my judge. But what did the king do? He says, no, that's not your name. I'm going to name you Belshazzar. I'm going to, I'm going to name you under a Babylonian deity. Every one of these guys were renamed. And their names were trying to strip them from their Judeo-Christian heritage and put on them a Babylonian wicked heritage. So every time they said these guys' names, they were giving praise to their gods. Now I want you to see this. The reason Daniel said no to or didn't have any problem with the name change is because he knew his identity. Amen? He knew his identity. The reason he didn't say no to all the training in the Babylonian culture is because he also knew what he believed. But the reason he put the brakes on when it came to the food is because he understood the law of God, and that's where he had to draw the line. He says, I'm not going to cross over the law and be guilty of disobedience to my God. You can change my name, but you will not change my identity. You can school me in your educational systems, but I know who I am, and I know what I believe. But you're not going to get me to cross the line and to disobey my God. That's why I'm just throwing this out there. As voters in this election cycle, uh, three non-negotiable convictions, biblical convictions, I have. I will never vote for anybody that is not for protecting innocent human life in the womb. Never will I cast a vote for the shedding of innocent blood. Non-negotiable. 
I will never vote for somebody who can't understand that marriage is between a man and a woman. Non-negotiable. I will never vote for somebody that doesn't understand the supremacy of our First Amendment religious liberty, that the human conscience belongs to God, and that no government is able to rule and dictate the consciences of men. That's an authority issue. I draw the line. If you don't get that right, I don't care who you are, DRI, whatever your initial is, you will not be getting a vote from me, because these are non-negotiable. I don't care if it promises a boost in the economy. I don't care. These are non-negotiable. We will not sell out for those principles. You got to figure out what you're standing up for. You got to know who you are and you got to know what you believe. And you need to figure it out quick because everything is shifting and we better figure it out quick. Let me end with this. Before Jesus began in his ministry, his public ministry, you remember this is Mark chapter one, verse, verse 11. God Almighty yelled from heaven and he said this, that's my kid. I love him and he brings me pleasure. This is my beloved son, he said, in whom I am well pleased. How many of you know you cannot live in a culture and demonstrate conviction for righteousness if you don't know Jesus personally and secondly, if you don't know your identity? Here's who we are fundamentally. You're a son or you're a daughter of the Most High God. Am I, am I speaking to the right crowd? I'm a lover of Jesus. I know where I'm going. I know who I am now. I know that I know the pathway because God has spoken. I have a passion for the Son of God. I love Andrew's word. There's only one being in the entire universe who burns with full-blown passion nonstop, and that's Jesus Christ because he's God. The rest of us have to work at it, do we not? That's why I need you. I need us to come back. I need the worship team. I I need the Bible. I need people to teach me because you know what? I want to fuel my passion for Jesus because at the end of the day, if my heart grows cold and distant and numb, I just might sell out somewhere along the line and compromise. Does this make sense? I shared last week, don't mess with my wife because you touch the center of my passion. On, a, on, a, on an earthly level. In other words, I'm not going to allow someone to come into my house and try to hurt my wife and just say, well, bless you, I'm praying for, I'm praying for you that you would repent and come to know the Lord as he's, as he's messing with my wife. You know what I'm saying? No, first of all, I would mess with him. And then I would pray for him later as he's going to the hospital, all right? I would, I would protect my wife because you don't mess with my wife. In fact, Joel can tell you some of the strongest interactions we ever had in our house was when there was dishonor from one of my kids to their mother. Nothing stirred the fire of their father's anger more than dishonor to the mother who gave you birth. Changed your poopy diapers. Was up with you through the night. Don't you dishonor that woman. Oh, by the way, she's my wife as well. You see what I'm saying? Here's what I'm saying. This is the point. Take it over. Jesus Christ, the Son of God who gave his life for you, who laid it all out, who went to the cross, even though we hated him, we rejected him, he went to that cross, he bore my shame, he bore my guilt, he paved the way so that I could know him. When that fire is burning in there, look out. You'll be bold as a lion, 
You will go places, do things, share the gospel. Your heart will be touched by the things that touch his heart. You'll be broken. You'll be an action figure. You'll do great exploits, things you never thought you would even do because you become another person. You become somebody who's filled with the courageous one and his courage comes out of you and you find yourself roaring in your culture because you have a fire for Jesus and because you know at the end of the day who you are. I can't tell you, church, how many times I've had to rest on the fact that when all is said and done, after the nasty article, after the nasty news report, whatever, that slandered our church or slandered my name, here's where I land every time. I exist for an audience of one. I report to one person. All I care is that one man is happy with this man. All I care about is my focus is on you, Lord. It's your reputation. Who cares about my reputation? Um, God, I want you to have pleasure in me. I hope all of you have pleasure in me, but I want you to have pleasure in me when it doesn't seem like anybody else in this world has pleasure in me. I know who I am, and my heart is burning with fiery affection for Jesus, which means the darker this culture gets, the more it's going to be an opportunity for us to shine bright and to open our mouths and to be saying things and doing things. Now, I just got to say this. Rebecca just told me this this morning. Um, Rebecca Wolf, she's in a class at Purdue Cal, all right? And in her government class at Purdue Cal, her professor in front of all the class mentions my name. That's weird. And this is what he said, I'm paraphrasing, but basically he said this. Dr. Ron Johnson is the only person in this region that stood up for religious liberty when he was going through his situation there. He mentioned mentioned me by name because when everybody was attacking this man simply for telling the truth about what was happening with Islam, he almost got fired from that university because of what happened. I picked up the phone and called him. I sought him out. I said, look. I don't know what you're doing or what you're stirring up, but I stand for your right to speak uh, from a Christian, Judeo-Christian perspective in the university. And if you need me to rally the troops and come to your aid, just call. Because you know what? That's called conviction. That's called, there are some things that we don't compromise or negotiate with the enemy. And I'm telling you, you got to figure out what those are. Why are we so absolutely committed to creating a culture of life? Non-negotiable. Non-negotiable. We will not compromise. Why can we not create special status for people that God says, no, that behavior is sinful? Because it's non-negotiable. There's no room for compromise on non-negotiables. Does this make sense? Now I'm going to really mess with you. Why do I write my tithes check every week? Non-negotiable. Oh, but we don't have enough to pay the mortgage. Great, the banker can wait. But God is always going to get his first. Non-negotiable. Why do we not cut the budget? Because things get tight, so we're not going to be able to go to the nations. The nations are why we exist. Unreached people, why we exist as a church. Why would we cut the very thing that is the heartbeat of God. Let's just stick, let's figure out what God's about. Non-negotiable. We're staying with Him. Don't compromise. Let me just tell you this. We're never going to have the 30-minute worship service on Sunday morning. You know why? We're here to worship the King. 
It takes a little time. He's worthy of it. It takes a little time to get the crust off, the dust off, get warmed up. We're not going to sing a song, sit down, pass the plate. And and I'll tell you another thing that's non-negotiable. You'll never hear a five-minute sermon from me. You know, you know why? It's not about me. Isn't God's word more precious than that? Do we honor the word? Do we, do we honor his presence? Or are we just playing church for God's sake? Some things are non-negotiable. Non-negotiable. It's called conviction. Stand to your feet. Hallelujah, I feel courage in my heart. How about you guys? And I just I just want to say this. I love being around courageous people because you know what? They get me fired up. And I need it. And I hope I fire you up. We need to fire each other up. Courage is contagious. God, let it spread like an epidemic in your church. Let the courage of Jesus, the roaring lion of Judah, God, let the church get her voice back. And God, may the roar of heaven Begin to fill the earth. God, we know we need to do it in love. We know we need compassion. We know we need to go low. We know we need to serve. Those are, those are convictions as well. But God Almighty, may we do it out of a burning sense of fiery love for you. God, we're your sons and we're your daughters. We're covered in your blood. You demonstrated your affections for us on the cross. God, may we never forget it. And God, may even this week, may courage flood our being so that we live in such a way that we put a smile on your face. God, let us be people of great kingdom exploits. We pray this all in Jesus' mighty name. And everybody said, amen.